your Bibles and turn to the book of Esther in the Old Testament. Today we're going to be looking at the last of the five little scrolls of the Old Testament that we've been studying this summer. We'll have a couple more messages on this book, but we're going to start uh, our study of this uh, small book that's tucked away in part of the Old Testament. As we begin, we, uh, I want to remind you we've come full circle now in the Jewish calendar. That each of these different books that we've looked at were read in association with a different festival or event or day of remembrance. And I want to just kind of review briefly here as we begin. We started with the Song of Songs, and that was read at Passover and what is the start of the Jewish year. Uh, Song of Songs celebrates the beauty of marital love, but it is also an illustration of how Christ loves the church. And then we turn to... The book of Ruth, which was read at Pentecost, a day that celebrates uh, the early harvest. And it's a story about grace, a story of one woman going from emptiness to fullness. It's a story of how Ruth, the Moabite, becomes part of the line of Christ, and how Boaz becomes a type of Christ as a kinsman redeemer. In Lamentations, we looked at the consequences of sin as we uh, looked at the destruction of Jerusalem because of their disobedience to God. And here is a people that are grieving and mourning. And yet in the midst of that book is this great word of hope. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we saw a celebration of life. Ecclesiastes is read in, in association with the Feast of Tabernacles. And we saw how life lived apart from God really is meaningless. It is a struggle for people to live apart from a relationship with God. But when we know Him, He gives us the ability to enjoy life and He challenges us to live it to the full for His glory within the boundaries that He has set. And today we're going to look at the book of Esther, which is read and and gives the explanation of why the Jews celebrate the festival of Purim. It's a story about God's providence in very difficult times. That God is at work even when we can't see Him. But when we come to this book, I'm going to give you a little bit of background information. Um, This particular book of Esther has been one of the most controversial books in the canon of Scripture. And there are several reasons for that. For example, uh, God's name is not used in this book. It's not mentioned at all one time in the entire book. No prayer is mentioned. There is a time when Esther calls upon the people to fast and it's implied that they would pray there, but there's no prayer given by any of the central characters and there's no mention of prayer in the story. In addition to that, you have at times the questionable character of the heroes. There are things that they say and do that we struggle with. Was that the right thing to do? Should they have done that or not? And it also celebrates a secular holiday, Purim, rather than a religious holiday like Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Purim is uh, celebrated with parties, people dress in costumes. It's a little bit more like Halloween in that sense where people dress up. It's not uh, the same connection. But it is one of those times when it celebrates the nation. It celebrates God's preservation of them as a people. There were no commentaries written by Christians on this book in the first seven centuries. John Calvin never preached from it, nor did he include it in his commentaries. 
And Martin Luther, who never held back his opinion on just about anything, uh, denounced it along with Second Maccabees, saying, I wish that they had never come to us at all, for they have too many heathen unnaturalities. And he said that in his book, Table Talk. So why was it included in our Bibles? Well, it is because this book of Esther clearly illustrates what theologians call the providence of God. And we're going to see that as we study this book. Karen Jobes, who wrote one of those commentaries, said that it shows us that even in the most pagan corner of the world, God is ruling all things to the benefit of His people and the glory of His name. There is no place on this earth over which God does not say, This is mine. And He is sovereign. And He is ruling over the events of men and nations according to His purposes and plans. And He will get the glory. Now that truth has been a great comfort to Jewish and Christian believers through the centuries. To the Jewish people, the Torah, those five books of Moses and Esther, are the most important books to them. Because it speaks so much of God's will for their life and of His preservation of them as a people. And to Christians who have lived in persecuted times or in countries where they are experiencing those kind of difficulties, they too find great comfort in the book of Esther that God is in control, even of pagan kings and nations. God is at work behind the scenes of history even when we can't see Him. So I think as we study these books, we're gonna, or this book, we're going to find some very interesting things that we'll wrestle with as we go along. Now the book of Esther takes place during dangerous times. And we see that in chapter 1 as we get a feel for the setting. I'd like to read that for us. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. And on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zether, and Karkath, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. 
But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And then the king became furious and burned with anger. And since it was customary for the king to consult the experts in matters of the law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshana, Shether, Admatha, Tarshish, Meris, Marsana, and Memukin, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were the highest in the kingdom. We're going to stop there and we'll come back to what they decide. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And there are going to be some things that we're going to talk about today that may raise questions in our mind. But also, I pray that they would give, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give us insight and direction. As we think of how the circumstances in which they live apply to our world and our times. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The writer of scripture here is giving us a feel for the setting in which this story takes place. Xerxes is the emperor of Persia, and he is a powerful and a dangerous man. Xerxes would rule from 486 to 465 B.C. We actually know quite a bit about his reign in addition to the biblical material. Herodotus, the Greek historian, wrote about the Persian wars and about what was taking place in that time. And he confirms many of these same details that we find here. That the empire of Xerxes was great. He had inherited it from his father and his grandfather, and it extended from India to Ethiopia, quite a vast region of the world. His grandfather Cyrus is mentioned in Scripture as the one who gave permission for the Jews to return to Jerusalem to begin work on rebuilding the temple. When it was stalled, it was Darius, his father, who allowed the work to continue. But there was still a great deal of anti-Semitism in the kingdom. A great deal of mistrust of the Jews in what they were doing. The banquet that we read about here in the third year of his reign corresponds very well to the great war council that Herodotus talked about that was held in 483 B.C. Xerxes indeed did bring people, rulers, leaders from the 127 provinces that were scattered throughout his empire. And he brought them to this war council. He entertained them for 180 days. He displayed his wealth and power to gain their loyalty His father, Darius, had tried to conquer Greece, but it failed. And Xerxes was making plans for war. And then came this great banquet for seven days. And you note the opulence here as the writer of Scripture describes all of the things that were part of that kingdom. The wealth, the gold, the silver, the beauty of different stones and jewels. Herodotus talks about that too, and archaeologists have confirmed it. If we were able to go to Iran today, you could see many of these places. The location of Susa is not far from Iraq. Uh, It's closer to that, in fact, on that side of Iran. Uh, It was one of four capitals that were used by these Persian kings, and it is beautiful. And you can see uh, many of the things were talked about here. In fact, it was interesting, I was reading in one of the recent uh, editions of National Geographic. It has a story about Iran and about the people there. 
and uh, it showed some of the pictures of different uh, archaeological ruins that are still there. And the writer of that story asked the people of Iran that he came in contact with, what is one thing that you want the world to know about you? I mean, what's something that you want to make sure that they know? And they said, tell the world that we are Persian. We are not Arabs. We are Persians. And they look back to the time of Cyrus the Great and Xerxes and Darius and all of that as the time that they would like to recover. I mean, at that point in history, there were two superpowers in the world. It was Greece and it was Persia. And they would like to recover that sense of greatness once again. They want to be a superpower. Well, here is this banquet that is taking place. And uh, Herodotus explains that it was customary for the Persians to drink while they deliberated matters of state. They even came to decisions while they were drunk. It may seem strange to us, but they believed that intoxication put them in closer contact with the spiritual world, and so their decisions would be better. And then in Esther, verses 9 to 12, we read how Queen Vashti is summoned to come to the banquet to display her beauty, and she refuses. And Xerxes is furious with her. We don't know more details about what she was asked to do. It is just told in a very straightforward way. Sometimes commentators have tried to add to that, but we can't. We just don't know what was involved in that request other than that she was to come and display her beauty. And Xerxes was furious, and very likely the reason that he was furious with her was that he needed his men to obey his commands as he went to war. But even in his own palace, he couldn't even get his wife to obey him. And it was embarrassing for him. And at the council of his advisors, they talk about what should we do. And they say that if this word gets out of the queen's conduct, then all the women in the land will choose to disobey their husbands and there will be no end to the disrespect and discord. And so Vashti must be banished. Vashti must be deposed as queen and the search will begin for another queen. The point that is being made here in the Scriptures is that the Persian court was not a safe place because Xerxes held great power and he wielded it unpredictably. If they could make decisions of great significance while they were drunk, if he could on a whim decide to dispose one person and raise up another, this is not a safe place to live. Once, in his desire to conquer Greece, he had ordered the men to build a bridge across the Hellespont. And then he beheaded the men building it because a storm delayed its completion. I mean, you put that in our setting. Can you imagine you know, saying that to the guys working on the I-35 bridge? You know, you've got to get it done by such and such date or else it's off with your head. I mean, we don't do that, but that was the world in which they lived. Xerxes was described by Herodotus as tall and handsome, the most handsome of the Persian rulers, but he was also ambitious and ruthless, a brilliant warrior and a jealous lover. And this is the setting in which Esther and Mordecai lived. And this is the setting in which many believers have lived and still live today.
You think of those believers who lived in the former Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin and at a whim could be put to death or sent to the gulags. You think of the Christians that lived in Nazi Germany and the difficult choices that they faced. You think of believers living in communist China and how carefully they must walk a line. Or believers under Pol Pot in Cambodia or Idi Amin in Uganda who have suffered greatly. We have seen in history how power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Only a king with perfect character is worthy of absolute power. Only Jesus Christ, the king over all kings, whose character is righteous and good, is worthy of absolute power. And when we live in dangerous times, believers are presented with difficult decisions to make. It's not always black and white, and that's what Esther and Mordecai faced. We see that in chapter 2, when we read that later, when the, king, the anger of the king had subsided, he, rem- he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. And then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Vashti was deposed in the third year of Xerxes' reign, 483 B.C. Esther becomes his queen in the seventh year, 479 B.C. And in between, Xerxes was off fighting a disastrous war with Greece. The war depleted his treasuries, and he came back disgraced. Herodotus, and now you need to remember Herodotus is a Greek historian writing about this, but he describes Xerxes' life after his defeat as one of sensual overindulgence. And that's what we see here. Many young girls were gathered for his harem. Esther was one of them. It was also not so pleasant for young boys at that time too. Because Herodotus tells us that 500 young boys were also gathered to serve as eunuchs in his court. He treated people as objects. He used them. He brought them in for his pleasure and his purposes. And it is appalling what is taking place here. But this is also where the story raises some questions for us. Questions about Esther and Mordecai's conduct and actions at this time. I mean, we read these stories and we wonder. You know, Mordecai, we are told in the text, is Esther's older cousin. He's a relative of her. And he raised her as his daughter because she was an orphan. And when she was taken to be one of Xerxes' uh, harem, did she resist? If not, why not? And how could she go to bed with such a ruthless pagan leader and win his favor? And what about Mordecai? Why didn't he defend her or risk his life to hide her? I mean, wouldn't it have been better to die than to be defiled? 
We think of Joseph who fled from Potiphar's wife. We think of Daniel who refused to eat the king's food. And yet in the Scripture here, no comment is given. The Scripture neither condones nor condemns what they did. It just tells us what happened. And Esther pleases Xerxes so much that she becomes his queen. You see, I don't think that Esther and Mordecai are being held up here as someone that we should follow in everything that they did, every example. I think instead the storyline of this book is about God who moved people and places and who, when the right time came, Esther and Mordecai made the right decision. You see, Esther and Mordecai are not heroes without flaws. We can question their decisions, but we can also be grateful that God uses people, flawed people, just like us. And there are times when good people are faced with difficult decisions. How do we live for Christ in a hostile land? If you were in China, would you be part of the registered church or the unregistered church? Would you think it a compromise to join with the registered church? Or would you choose to be part of that underground movement that is going on? If you had lived in Nazi Germany, would you have supported your government and your country? Or would you have opposed it like a Bonhoeffer did? If in America the laws change and move in the direction in which they seem to be going, where we are no longer to say what the Bible says about marriage or homosexuality or some of the things that the Bible is so clear on, what will you do? If the government removed the tax exemption for churches, would you still give at the level at which you do? There are choices that Christians need to make in very difficult situations. And there are things on which the Bible is absolutely clear this is the right thing to do and we are to do it at all times and in every place. But there are also things for which Christians wrestle with. I mean, uh, this past month in Leadership Magazine, which is written for Christian leaders uh, in our country, there's a debate between Charles Colson, Greg Boyd, and Shane Claiborne. Now, Chuck Colson, I think all of you would know who he is, served under President Richard Nixon. He believes that Christians need to be actively involved in the political process. Greg Boyd is a pastor in a church in St. Paul. He says, maybe, cautiously, he has a much different view of how Christians are to be involved in the political process. And Shane Claiborne is the founder of a new monastic order in Philadelphia. And he would say, no. I don't think you should. I think there's other things that we should be giving our time to. And they all raise good questions. It's not always black and white, and there are times when Christians may disagree, and we may feel very strongly about the convictions that we have. That's part of the challenge of living in a fallen world where we are faced with difficult decisions, and we wrestle with what is the right thing to do. And I'm sure Esther and Mordecai did that as well. They wanted to honor God. They were struggling with, how do I survive in this kind of world? Well, what happens is, and we see this in the text, that there are defining moments 
in our life when we must make a choice. And Esther and Mordecai had to do that. They come to these situations where they have to choose. Who are they going to follow? Who are they going to be loyal to? And they are interesting situations that God and His providence brings to their life. For Mordecai, for example, one of those occurs in chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. Let me read that for you. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Now again, this is told in a very straightforward way. Mordecai, who happens to just be in the right spot at the right time, overhears this plot to assassinate Xerxes. And there's no hesitation on his part as to what he should do. I mean, you know, Mordecai could have said, good, they're going to knock this guy off. I don't like this guy. But instead, he chose to be loyal to the country in which he lived, and he sent this report through Esther to warn Xerxes. And God used it for good. The word of the Lord had come to those people through Jeremiah the prophet, to the Jews living in exile, and you may remember this from Jeremiah 29, when the Lord instructed the exiles to pray for the city and the countries to which they were taken. And he said that in their welfare, you will have welfare. I want you to settle down. I want you to get married. I want you to have children. I want you to live there and pray for the place to which I am sending you. Because in its welfare, you will have welfare. Now that's interesting, isn't it? The time would come when he would regather them and bring them back to the land. But he said, wherever I move you, I want you to pray for that. And so if you're living in Beijing as a Christian, he wants you to pray for the city of Beijing in that country. And if you're living in Lindstrom, he wants you to pray for Lindstrom. And he wants you to pray for America. Wherever he places us, he wants us to be good citizens and to be involved in our world as a witness for Christ. There's another situation that comes up for Mordecai, though, in chapter 3, where we are introduced to a character named Haman. And Mordecai refuses to bow down to this leader, Haman. Why? Because Haman is a descendant of Agag, an Amalekite, an ancient enemy of Israel. And Mordecai refuses to bow to him. But Mordecai's refusal puts the whole nation at risk because what we would read, and we don't have time to read it all in chapter 3, is that Haman will plot to take his revenge, not just on Mordecai, but on the whole nation of the Jews. He appeals to the king, and he hatches the plot that on a certain day, at such and such time, there will be permission given to destroy all of the Jews in the empire of Persia. 
It is awful what he proposes and carries out. And this order is sent, written with the king's own hand or sealed with his own insignia. And what happens then is that it presents a dilemma for Esther. Esther must make a choice. And that comes in chapter 4 where Mordecai urges her to go to the king to beg for mercy and to plead for her own people. She has kept her identity secret to this point, but now it will have to be revealed, and it is a risk for her. Her own life is in danger. But Mordecai says to her in that great uh, section at the end of chapter 4, that perhaps you have come to power for such a time as this. Esther, maybe this is what all of this is about. And he says in chapter 4, verse 14, that if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Esther must make a choice. Will she be silent or will she identify with the people of God? And Esther chooses to go to the king. You know, I think about that for each one of us. That there comes a time in our life when all of us have to decide who we will believe, who we will follow, who we will give our life to. Where is our allegiance? Who is the one that we do call Lord in our life? And Jesus spoke very clearly about that in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 25, Jesus said to them all that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Jesus stated those words for us very powerfully that we must decide who we will follow. And if we are going to follow Him as our Savior and Lord, that it means saying no to self and taking up that cross, being willing to die for Him. These were defining moments for Esther and Mordecai. And at the right time, when it counted the most, they chose to be identified with the people of God and follow Him. And God used them to bring about a great deliverance for His people. How have you seen God's hand at work in your life when you look back? And what is the work that He is calling you to do today at this moment? What is your assignment from God? It may be directly related to your vocation or to things that are going on in your family or an open door that God has set before you. Will you choose Or have you chosen to identify yourself with the people of God as a follower of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, when we think about the assignments that you have given to each one of us, it means being faithful to you. It means loving you above all other things in this world. It means being obedient to your word and doing what you've asked us to do. It means honoring you in our words and our actions so that others might see Christ in us. When those defining moments come and there are little decisions that we make every day, God, would you give us the courage and the strength to do the right thing and the wisdom to know what that is. Help us to be faithful.
as we seek to live for you in our community and we pray for our land and our nation. Help us to honor you and to lift you up. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.